The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Psalm 67 this morning. We continue sort of our journey through the Old Testament Psalter sort of cherry-picking psalms each and every week, trying to get a, a taste and a flavor for the nature of the book of Psalms and the variety of things that the psalmist would have us to hear and to, and to sing. And Psalm 67 provides for us sort of a new theme that we have not yet seen in the psalms, but it's one that really finds its, uh, it, it's, its home in the psalms surrounding Psalm 67 as well. Here's what the word of the Lord says in Psalm 67. To the, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. It's the word of the Lord. I want you to note this morning, by way of introduction, a theme that runs really from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to its very end. There are several themes, in fact, that sort of weave their way through the entire Old and New Testament, sort of like a a thread that just sort of finds its way uh, through the various sections of both the Old and the New Testament. This is one of the major themes that finds its way all the way through, and it runs right through Psalm 67. It is the theme of worship. It could be said that worship is the very theme of the universe, That ever since there has been a universe, worship has been the theme that sort of runs the universe. If we were to be able to teleport back to eternity past, before men were created, before the earth was created, before anything was going on that's going on now, at least down here, what do you think we would find? We would find the Holy Trinity. And before man, we would find holy angels. And what do you think they were doing? Well, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, gives us a glimpse. It says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven, what? They worship you. The multitudes of heaven worship the Lord. It's what they've been doing forever. It's what they've been doing since time began if we were to move forward from, uh, from before creation into creation and we find the first man and woman placed uh, on earth and breathed life into by God Almighty, what would we find that they were created and put on this earth to do? They were created and put on this earth to worship God. They walked with Him and they talked with Him in the cool of the day. They worshipped Him. They glorified Him. They exalted Him. Until one day... They didn't. Until one day they decided they were not going to worship God anymore. They were going to worship someone else. An enemy. Perhaps even themselves. And they fell. Sin entered into humanity. Eve chose to worship Satan. Adam chose to worship Eve. And as soon as they ceased worshiping God, they fell. You move forward a little bit into, uh, into history beyond that, and you find really the first division among men became uh, a division between two brothers, Cain and his brother whom? Abel. And what brought about the division between these two brothers? Well, it was all about the way that they did what? They worshipped. One brought a, an offering of worship that was acceptable to the Lord, and the other brought an offering that was not. And we know how that ended up. 
And as we move our way through the Old Testament and we follow uh, the, the nation of Israel as it grows and as it moves, we find that in the, the season of the patriarchs, when they worshipped God with their hearts and they worshipped Him properly, they were blessed. And when they ceased to worship Him and worship Him properly, what happened? All the curses of the covenant came to them. Moving forward, the nation of Israel finds itself, by the, book, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, enslaved to the Egyptians. And God raises up a leader, Moses, and he sends Moses to Pharaoh. And he sends him with a message to deliver to this Pharaoh. Do you remember what the message was? It was to, if you sang kids' songs when you were in children's church or Sunday school, you know the message was, let, let my people go. But for what purpose? For what purpose? Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they might worship me in the desert. It was all about worship. All about worship. They wandered in the desert for 40 years in the Sinai desert until an entire generation died off. And why did they wander around and why did they not enter the promised land? Because they failed to worship God properly, including Moses, their leader. And when they finally get into the land, we find in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 and 1 Chronicles 29 that they once again worshipped God properly and they were blessed by God and enjoyed all of His blessing and riches. We fast forward into the New Testament era when Jesus came. He was born. And what was the first thing that happens when Jesus is born? People are drawn to him, even at his birth. And what do they do? They worship him. They worship him. One of the first things Jesus did in his, in his own public ministry was to march right into the temple, right into the heart of the corrupted worship of Israel and do what? Well, he pulls out a whip and he overturns the money changers and he, he just excoriates the nation of Israel for their corruption of worship. The corruption of worship. And then he goes on to call true worshipers to worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship has always been the issue. From the very beginning of the Bible, all the way through the Bible, into the New Testament, it's always been about worship. It is one of the central themes of all of redemptive history. If you want to know actually what a church is, you can look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and it gives us a clear definition of a church. Paul says, For we are the real circumcision who worship God by spirit, excuse me, who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What is a church? What is a Christian church? It is a group of people who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That is what a church is. A worshiping body of people who worship God in spirit, glorify Christ. That's what a church is. And all throughout the ages, God has been calling through His people anyone who will come to Him to be worshipers of Him. And if you move all the way beyond us into the future, to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4, and you find when history finally consummates and everything comes to a sort of stunning conclusion, what do you think is going to be going on? Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, you get a little tiny glimpse of the future. The glory of the Lord coming and setting up His kingdom. In verse 10 of Revelation 4, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. What is the theme of heaven? It's worship. The worship of God. And you move your way all the way through the book of Revelation, chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 19, chapter 22. I mean, the whole book concludes with John, uh, the, the human author of Revelation, falling down on his face and worshiping the Lord Jesus. This theme of worship finds its, its way all the way through the entire Bible. God is all about worship. The worship of the peoples. And that thread of worship finds its way right through the middle of Psalm 67 in the middle of our Bibles. 
This is indeed a missionary song. It is a missionary song because it is a song that, that displays the heart of an Old Testament Jew that God would draw the nations of the world to worship Him. That's what it is. It's the heart of this psalm. It is a psalm that burns with a passion for the nations, that the nations would come and worship the one true living God. It is a psalmist who understands that he has encountered the one true living God and he has been blessed by Him. He has, he has been saved by Him. He has been redeemed by Him. And he owes his entire life to Him. And his heart is exploding in worship with a heart and a desire that everyone in the world of every nation would come to know the same thing that he knows. That God is everything. And that the nations of the world would fall before him in worship. That is the heart of the psalm. It is a missionary psalm that bleeds with a desire to see the nations of the world come to know God. It's not a very long psalm. Only seven verses. It's fascinating in a lot of different ways, but I want to sort of shape the way we're going to look at it this morning by sort of looking at three categories. It's a missionary song, so it relates to missions, and so I want to sort of, sort of hang our thoughts on three ideas. I want us to look at the heart of missions, which is passion, and I want us to then move from the heart of missions sort of to the second category, the goal of missions, which is worship. And then I want us to look at the fuel of missions, which is blessing. So three words, passion, worship, blessing. The three things that we're going to look at, all of them related to the thing that's on the heart of this psalmist, that the nations would come to worship God. So the first thing I want you to see is this, this idea of passion, the heart of missions. It is the central feature of the psalm, and that's why I've listed it first. The, the central feature of this psalm is the cry of the heart of this psalmist, For the nations to be saved. He is not concerned primarily with only his own people. You notice that, right? He is not concerned primarily only with his family. He is not concerned primarily only with his friends and his circles of influence. He is not, in fact, only concerned with his nation, the nation of Israel. His passion extends way beyond all of those boundaries all the way to the very ends of the earth, to every single nation of the world. The burning desire of this psalmist's heart is that the nations of the world would experience salvation that comes from God and that they would worship Him. This is a psalmist who is not self-absorbed. He is not self-consumed. His life is not, is not lived completely oriented around himself and his family and his friends and his circle of influence or even his own nation. He knows what it is to be blessed by God. He knows what it is to know God. He knows what it is to fear God. He knows what it is, as we'll see, to enjoy God. And the passion of his heart is that every person in every nation in every corner of the world would know what he knows and experience what he has experienced. He has a heart and a passion for the nations. And we see this in many ways in this psalm. Now, the Psalms I mentioned early on in our, in our series, and we begin to look at this, we begin to, when we're trying to analyze a Psalm and understand what is this about, we're looking at it a little differently and analyzing it a little differently than we would say, look at Paul's letters or the narratives in the Gospels. Uh, because when we look at Psalms, we're looking at poetry, and poetry expresses itself in ways that are unique to poetry. And oftentimes, the poets who write the Psalms will tell us by way of how they structure things what's really on their minds. And we see that here in this particular Psalm, the way it is structured. You notice when you look at this Psalm that there's a chorus that repeats itself. I know you caught that, right? There's a chorus that repeats itself, verse 3 and verse 5. And the chorus is this, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. That's the chorus, and those, that chorus separates sort of three thought pieces. And when the, when the psalmist repeats something, that normally is a clue to us that this is the, the main emphasis that they're after. They're repeating for us what's the main thing that's on their mind. 
And when you look at this psalm, not only do you see that what's repeated is this cry that all the people of the world, that all the nations of the world would come to worship God and praise Him. But we find sandwiched right in the middle of this a central feature. Verse 4. And the first sentence is, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It's hard for me to explain to you how this thing is set up if, if, if you don't uh, have some sense for Hebrew poetry. Let me just give you this and try and make it make sense. What we have in this first section of this, of this book is called a chiasm. And I know you've probably never heard this word and you will probably never ever need to know it again unless you go on Jeopardy and the category is Hebrew poetry. And if that's the case and you win money, I, I expect a cut, okay? That's all I'm saying. A chiasm is simply a poetic device used by the poets and the, the psalmist often by, by which they set up thoughts that correspond to one another in a pattern. So what we have here is this. If we take verses 3, 4, and 5, you have a chiasm. You have verse 3 and verse 5 that correspond to one another. And in between them, sandwiched, is a thought that's very similar but it becomes the central feature that ties those two together. So we have these two verses, 3 and 5, which tell us about this, this chorus. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. And the first, verse, uh, uh, first sentence of verse 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It kind of becomes like an arrow that points to what is the main thing that this guy's talking about. You'll see chiasm also in this psalm if you look at verse 1. And then you look at the very last verse, verse 7. Verse 1 is a a verse that talks to us right at the beginning. May God be gracious to us and bless us. What do we see in verse 7, the very last thing? God shall, what? Bless us. These two things correspond. You see that? And everything in between moves to a point. And so that's chiasm. Okay, if you go on Jeopardy, just remember me, okay, when you win because of that. The whole point in making that is is for you to see that what's on the heart of this man is his passion to see the nations rejoice and be glad and worship the Lord. That is the main thrust of the entire song. That's why it's written. That's why it's being sung. And that's what's oozing out of the heart of this man. All throughout this psalm is a, a passion to see lost people come to know the Lord. Lost people from all over the world. Verse 1, his, it's just even there it's, we find it, that your, that your way may be known and your saving power be known where? Among all the nations. Verse 7, that all the ends of the earth may fear the Lord from beginning to end. This is a psalm that speaks to us about a passion for the world to know God and be saved and to worship Him. It's a psalm with a missionary heart. We oftentimes overlook this in the Old Testament, but the reality is this has been the heart of God from the very beginning, that all the nations of the world would come to know him, experience the blessing of knowing him, and come to worship him. When we think of the Old Testament, you and I normally think of the Old Covenant between God and Israel. And we tend to think of God's work with the nation of Israel because that is primarily what consumes the narrative of the Old Testament. But as we think of the Old Testament, God dealing with Israel, we forget the reason by which God, or the reason for which God elected Israel to begin with. And we find that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God begins to establish this nation. He establishes a covenant with whom? A man named Abram, later to be called Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. All right, here's the part we need to catch. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why did God send Abram from his home to another place? Why did God say, Abram, I've selected you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, a people of my own that I could pour out my unique blessing on? Why did God do that to begin with? So that... What? In Him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
The goal was, and the heart of God in the beginning, was to establish a nation who would then be a light to the world that would draw the nations in to worship Him. It's always been God's heart. We see that same promise reiterated to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26 and verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and I will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the world shall be blessed. It was the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. We move over to Isaiah chapter 49, on down in the history of Israel, and it's still the message that God is declaring through His people. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations in order that my salvation might reach where? To the ends of the earth. God's plan for Israel was always that they might be a vessel through which his salvation would reach the ends of the earth. Now you and I know a little bit about Old Testament history. And we know what tended to happen over and over and over and over with the nation of Israel. Instead of embracing that passion to see the nations come to know their God, what did they largely do? They turned inward. They enjoyed the blessings of God for themselves and became very prideful and puffed up in those blessings. And hoarded them for themselves and looked down on the rest of the world. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God deals with that in His people. So that by the time we get to the New Testament and the birth of Christ, we have a nation of Israel that's still in existence, whose spiritual leadership is not only puffed up in pride, running around saying things, but we are children of Abraham. We are the special people. You are the Gentile dogs. It's a long ways from the heart of God in the beginning, isn't it? And into that very context, in the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born. To be born as a particular fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. To be Himself a seed of Abraham. To be born as a seed of Abraham to accomplish or to begin to accomplish what God had intended back in the very beginning in Genesis when he called Abraham to himself. He sent his very own son to live and to die and to be buried and to be raised again for the sins of his people. That once again people from every nation might be drawn to him and become worshipers of him. And in Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 We see Paul express this reality when he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might what? Might come to Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God sent Jesus so that the promise to Abraham might finally come to the ends of the earth. Do you see it? And because of that, to this very day, every single human being who entrusts their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith becomes a son of Abraham, inheriting all the blessings God promised to Abraham. And that's why Paul can say a few verses later in verse 29 of Galatians 3 this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the purpose. You are an inheritor of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 3. When you entrust your life to Christ, when you belong to Christ, you become an inheritor of the promise. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's why Jesus came. And this very same Jesus launches into his own ministry. And his entire ministry is sort of wrapped around an expressed desire that the nations might come to know God through faith in him. The very first call to his disciples. Do you remember what it was? He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these men and he comes along to these fishermen. And what does he say to them? Do you remember? He says, come follow me in order that you might hoard my blessings. No. Come follow me and I'll make you into something. I'll make you what? I'll make you fishers of men. You come follow me, and I'll teach you how to go out and find people and fish for them. I'll make you missionaries. 
is the initial call to discipleship. And what was the last thing Jesus said to him before he left? Do you remember? Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And here we go again, all the way to the ends of what? The earth. The whole ministry of Jesus, it begins by a call to people to follow him and become missionaries and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And his ministry ends with his last words, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This has been the heart of God from Genesis all the way down to Revelation. Which makes it particularly troubling when we look across the sort of landscape of the Christian world today. And frankly, when we look across the landscape of our own Christian hearts, that so many churches and so many Christians are absolutely indifferent to the lostness of the nations. Most content to just sort of go through the motions of life in church. If lost people happen to stumble into the doors somehow by accident and get saved, then hey, we're all happy and we celebrate. But there's no real drive to intentionally engage lost people. No real drive to intentionally engage the nations. No real concern, in fact, for the lostness of the nations, and certainly not much motivation to do anything actually about it. When we look at this psalm, we see a psalmist who is absolutely not indifferent to the lostness of the nation. He is passionate for the salvation of the nation. In fact, he is leading the people in singing and declaring over and over and over again. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. Let your ways be known to them. Let them know your saving power. Let all the ends of the earth fear God. He's modeling for us what a godly man's attitude toward the nations ought to be. People who are recipients of the marvelous grace of God in Christ, should have a burning passion within them to see other people experience the same thing. And that passion must extend beyond their own lives and their own families and their own circles of influence. It must extend to every nation on the earth. And yet it often does not. Charles Spurgeon says this, If there be any one point in which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at white heat, it is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it is the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. And yet the Christian church in the United States of America, the most prosperous Christian church in the world, has failed pathetically at this calling. And we, we have to be careful in moments like this not to put that responsibility at somebody else's doorstep. It really comes back to ours. Let me just give you a couple of quick statistics. The total population of the world right now is somewhere in the neighborhood of 7.47 billion 7.47 billion. Let's just round it to 7.5 billion. Out of that 7.5 billion, according to the Joshua Project that researches these things, about 3.15 billion are unreached with the gospel. So you figure that out. I won't even make you do the math. That's 42.2% of the population of planet Earth right now that is unreached with the gospel. 3 billion people. Let that sink in for just a minute. Three billion people who know nothing about the God who made them. Who know nothing about His Son, the Lord Jesus, who's died for their sins. Who have never heard somebody say to them, The God who made you loves you. And has given His very own Son to die for your sins and your rebellion. And if you'll simply place your faith and trust in Him He will forgive your sins and he will invite you into his family. And he will open every blessing that floods from heaven into your life. And he will take you to be his very own child. Three billion people have never heard that. And much of the Christian world that hears it week after week after week after week could simply care less. 
You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is good news. It's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And the lost people need to hear the gospel. But Carl F.H. Henry said this best. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And that's right. So how does this apply to us? It should cause us to stop and pause for a second. It should cause us to step back and look at our own hearts. It should cause us to ask questions of ourselves like this. When was the last time the lost nations of the world entered my prayer life? When was the last time I even prayed for the lost nations of the world? When was the last time those three billion people that live and breathe right now who don't know Christ even so much as got a prayer from my heart? When was the last time I sang about the salvation of the nations? That's what this is. It's a song. It's a song that was sung. And the reason it was a song that was sung in corporate worship, I believe, is because it was a way to regularly remind God's people that there are billions of people out there that don't know Him, that don't praise Him, who don't worship Him, who need to hear and who need to know. We don't sing about that much anymore. When was the last time we did anything? Actually moved in some direction to do something about those three billion people around us. Oswald Smith says this, Any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. And that's a strong statement, but I believe it's true. What good is a church if it's not doing anything about the lostness of the world? It's the same question we could ask about Israel in the Old Testament. What good is an Israel if they're not blessing the nations like God had established them to do? It's no good. The whole reason the church is here is because Israel did not do what God had established it to do. Charles Spurgeon said this. If sinners be damned, if they'll be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they'll perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Is it too much to ask you to think through that in your own life? And to search your own heart and ask the question, do I really care about the nations of the world? Do I really care that there are three billion people That if they were to die in an instant, they would die and go to an eternal hell apart from God. Do I care? And if I care, what am I doing? Am I praying for them? Am I doing anything at all, even something tiny, to impact that in some way? That is what this psalm is about. The heart of missions. The heart of missions is a passion for lost people. And for lost people that extend all the way to the the nations at the ends of the earth. It's the heart of missions. We will never reach the three billion if we don't care about them to begin with. If we're absolutely content to just live our own Christian lives and enjoy the blessings that God has given us and just be happy in what we've got. If we don't care about anything beyond that, then the nations will never be reached. And secondarily, we should expect nothing more than what Israel got when they adapted that, adopted that attitude, the judgment of God. All right, my time's up on that piece. Let's look at the second piece, the goal of missions. If the heart of missions is a passion that cares about lost people all the way to the ends of the earth, what is the goal of missions? It's worship, and we see this in verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, and let the peoples praise you. The goal of missions, you and I should notice here, is not simply to get people to say yes to a presentation. When I was growing up, this was what I was taught really in church largely, that evangelism and missions was about learning a presentation and presenting that to somebody and getting them to, at the end of that, say yes. And that that's what evangelism was. That was what missions is, is to tell people about Jesus and get them to say yes and then move on to the next person. 
That's called making converts of some sort. But that's not the goal of missions here. The goal of missions is not to make converts. The, the, missions of, uh, the goal of missions is not simply to get people to say yes to a presentation and then move on to the next person. It's not even simply to get people to go to church. Because going to church is not the same thing as becoming a true worshiper. It seems here that the goal of missions that is flowing out of the heart of this psalmist is that the nations might be, might be transformed from lost people and to people who become heartfelt, joyful worshipers of God. Right? Did you see that? That's the cry of the heart. That they might praise you. That they might worship you. That they might be glad and joyful in you. The goal of missions is the worship of the nations of the one true God. God isn't after simply converts. He's after worshipers. What is it that he wants uh, from the nations? He wants them, if you look at this psalm, to know him, to praise him, to enjoy him, to fear him. And all of that is a way of saying to worship him. It provides for us, and we don't have time to really work through it this morning. I wish we did uh, sort of an interesting profile on worship if we were to sort of look at it through that lens. And I could just point it out to you, and you can go back and meditate on this later. Worship is not primarily going to church and singing and all of the things that we're doing this morning. These things are expressions of worship. They're ways that worship explodes out of us. But worship involves the knowledge of God. You see that in verse 2? That your way may be known. It involves the saving power of God. You're saving power among the nations. In order to become a worshiper of God, you've got to know God. And you've got to have experienced His saving power in your life. Nobody worships God who doesn't know Him. Nobody worships God who hasn't been saved by Him and redeemed by Him. Worship is the exclusive category for believers. Worship also involves the gladness and joy in God. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It, is, it involves the explosion of a heart that has, been, that has experienced the saving power of God, that is joyful and glad, understanding that they have the greatest gift in the entire universe, and if they lose everything else, they have no reason to lose their joy because they have the one thing that matters. Worship involves the fear of God. You see that at the end, right? That all the nations might fear the Lord. They might all fear Him. All the ends of the earth. So true worship is really then the response of one's entire being to the glory, honor, and worth of the one true living God. And that worship expresses itself through singing and praying and studying and serving and loving and giving and obeying. And that is what God is after. That the nations might know Him. That they might experience His saving power. That they might find in Him true joy and gladness and stand before Him in reverent awe. When the nations do that before the Lord, that's the consummation of the Great Commission. So worship then is the goal of missions. God created men to worship Him. We saw that theme in the introduction all the way to the end. The problem is we're living in this season of the history of the church where sin is still in the picture. And sin has corrupted men's hearts and has drawn us to worship ourselves or to worship the creation instead of worshiping Him. And so we have three billion people on this planet who do not worship the one true living God, who worship created things or worship themselves. And they need to hear the gospel. So missions then becomes the means to the goal of the global worship of God. John Piper, I'll give you this quote or this book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's really sort of a seminal work built off of Psalm 67 on the imperative of missions. If this is of interest to you, I would encourage you to get that book and to read it. Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. He expounds on this point in hundreds of pages in ways far better than I could ever. But one of the points he makes in that book is we cannot call the nations to what we do not know ourselves. And he says it this way. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, 
who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exalt you. I will sing praise to your name. Missions begins and it ends in worship, he says. So again, the question comes to our hearts, what, what is it that we're doing to cultivate a life of true worship? What is it that, that we're doing in our life to cultivate the reality of worship in our hearts, to cultivate this reality that we rejoice in the Lord, that we're glad and exalt in Him, that we stand before Him in holy reverence and awe? The more we stoke personal worship in our own lives, the more the fire will burn for the three billion that are lost. When our passion for our own worship dies, our passion for the lost nation dies with it. The two are combined. So a passion for the lost is the heart of missions. And worship is the end goal of missions. What is the fuel that burns it all? Blessing. Verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7, the beginning and the end of that chiasm. Look at verse 1 with me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. That may sound eerily familiar if you read the book of Numbers, because it is a, a very famous passage from the book of Numbers. It is called the Aaronic Blessing. There's another Jeopardy answer for you. It is simply the blessing that God had told Moses to tell Aaron to pray over the people in the book of Numbers. Verse, uh, you can find that in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and following. The Lord Bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What is all that about? It's a prayer for the blessing of God to come into the life, right? Uh, to make, what is this idea about God? Make his face shine upon you. What is, what is all of that about? Well, a face that, that is shining upon you is the opposite of a face that's frowning at you or a face that's growling at you or a face that's angry with you. It's a face that is looking towards you, not looking away from you. It's a face that is looking towards you with a smile, with a shine of blessing and favor. It is a prayer that's saying, God, bless us. God, be, be gracious to us. Look upon us with your special, saving, redeeming favor. That is a prayer for the blessing of God. When we hear the terms, God bless us, or when we even say, God, we pray that you would bless us, what do we normally think of? We normally think of, like, getting things, right? We normally think of God blessing us as, like, we got money when we didn't expect it, or we got a promotion at work, or we got better when we were sick. We, we tend to think in terms of physical sort of material blessings. Thank you, God, for blessing me. And we normally mean by that, thank you for giving me something, or thank you for doing something physical, tangible, material for me. But that's, not, that's encompassed by what the psalmist has in mind. But he has in mind so much more. He's not just praying for the physical, material blessings of God. He's praying for the spiritual blessings of God. This whole idea of having his face shine upon them is a, a prayer that God would be intimately involved in their lives. And that they would know him spiritually. He would be their God and be active in their lives. And show his favor spiritually to them. He's praying that God would look favorably upon them, graciously save them, pour out His favor on them. But you notice that prayer for blessing quickly turns around and becomes a missionary prayer. Why is it that he's praying for God's blessing? Do you see this? God bless us. Make your face shine upon us so that, so that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power upon the nations. Let me tell you something, friends. There is a powerful truth in this one concept of this prayer. The psalmist understands something that every one of us must understand. That the blessing of God, both spiritually and materially, is poured out upon His people for a purpose. And that purpose is not simply that they might enjoy it. It's not simply that they might hold it for themselves. That blessing that God pours out for them is for the purpose that His name might be known among the nations and His saving power might go to the nations. If you enjoy one blessing from the Lord this morning in your life, spiritually or materially, you must understand there is a reason by which God has blessed you with that. And the reason is right here. 
so that his name might be known upon the earth and so that his saving power might be among the nations. The same thing is in verses 6 and 7. Look at it, look at it with me. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. It's the same thing. A, 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 a sort of a confident statement about God's blessing. It's the picture of a farmer looking out over his field at the, at the vast harvest that God has blessed him with. And he's looking out over this vast blessing that God has poured out abundantly into his life. And he is saying, the earth has yielded its increase. Look at what God has done for me. God has blessed me and God will bless me. And what is the next thing that rolls off of his tongue? Let all the ends of the earth fear him. God, you have blessed me and you're going to continue to bless me. God, how can I use this blessing that all the ends of the earth might fear you? You've given it to me so that they might come to know you. How do I connect what you've given me to what they desperately need? Do you see that? Here's the principle. God blesses His people, simple principle, in order that they might leverage those blessings to bless the nations with the gospel. I want you to stop for just a minute as we wrap this sermon up this morning and think about all the ways God has blessed you. I want you to think in two categories. I want you to think physical, material blessings, and I want you to think category two, spiritual blessings. Begin to make a mental list of all the ways God has blessed you. The way God, all the ways God has looked favorably upon you. That He's made His face to shine upon you favorably. And then ask yourself this question. Have I ever stopped to think? Have I ever realized that every one of those blessings has been poured out on me with a purpose? That I might somehow leverage those blessings to bless the nations with the gospel. That's why God has blessed you. That's why God has blessed me. That's why He's given me a wonderful job and a paycheck every week. That's why He's blessed me with a, with a loving, gracious, kind, beautiful family. It's why every material blessing I have in my life, I have. It's why He spiritually has saved me. It's why He's given me spiritual gifts to employ in and through my life. It's why He's kept me alive every day. It's why when I wake up in the morning and my eyes open and my mouth opens, breath comes in and goes back out again. God has blessed us that we might leverage that blessing to reach the nations. And I'm telling you that if that concept grips your heart, it will pierce you. It should pierce you. It pierces me when I think about how often I hoard the blessings of God to myself and could care absolutely nothing whatsoever about the 3.1 billion people who don't know Him, who are not worshipers of Him at the moment. How infrequently I leverage the blessings He's poured out in my life in their direction. The biggest hindrance to reaching, the, gospel, to reaching the, the nations with the gospel is the selfishness of the people of God. And I say that as an indictment of my own heart, not to kick you in the shin. The greatest impediment to the nations becoming worshipers of God is the selfishness of His people who would prefer to hoard His blessings rather than Leverage them to reach them with the gospel. If that rings true in your heart, as it rings true in mine, as I've studied this text, I pray that you do something about it. As we close up our time of worship this morning, I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to say this to you lovingly as, as your pastor who, who, who loves each of you deeply. I love you as a church, and, and God has, has richly blessed us as a congregation in so many ways. But I fear that in this area, 
we are inconceivably weak. And we don't care nearly enough. And I pray that as we take a few minutes here to just pray together and think about how we have to respond to this psalm this morning, that you would search your own heart and you would search your own life and you'd begin to ask yourself hard questions. Do I really care about the nations of the world? Do I really care about the lost people who live around me? Have I sinned against God by hoarding His blessings for myself and my family and cared nothing about the nations? And I dare you to begin to pray, God, open my eyes to the lostness around me and to the lostness in the world and release from my grip your blessings that I might leverage them to see lost people come to know you. God, we bow before you this morning as we wrap up this, this time of study and this psalm. We bow before you in repentance. We repent for our lack of concern for the nations. The psalmist shames us. He shames us because we hear him sing over and over, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let all the peoples of the earth praise you. We rarely ever sing such words. We rarely even pray such words. And yet you have poured out on us blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. God, open our tight grip on our blessings that we might release what you've given us and leverage it to see lost people come to know you in our city, in our nation, and to the very ends of the earth birth within this congregation and within each of our hearts a passion, a drive, a desire to see the nations become worshipers of you, the one true living God. Empower us with the gospel to go and to speak it to anyone who will listen. Bust through our indifference and our apathy and light a fire in our souls, we pray. Inflame our own worship, Lord. That as we worship you, our passion for the lost might grow. You must do this work in us, O oh God. Do it for Christ's sake, we pray.